Chapter 6 of In Seven Stages, A Flying Trip Around the World by Elizabeth Bisland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Holly Jensen. Chapter 6, Sixth Stage. It is a five days run from Penang to the island of Ceylon. The shop's company has dwindled to a handful, and time hangs heavily upon us. We are reduced, for lack of other occupations, to an undue interest in the ship's menagerie. The pretty little fifth officer has a monkey, a surreptitious monkey, not allowed to members of the staff. And at such times as the stern seniors are on duty, we amuse ourselves fearfully and secretly with his antics. A tiny Methuselah-faced simian, regarding all his human cousins with loathing suspicion, but to be placated with raisins. A small, shivering, chattering captive, dancing to amuse his jailers, with a grin of hate on his sorrowful, weazened countenance. At other times, while the powers that be look on, the fifth and I sport ostentatiously with two gorgeous and permissible cockatoos, whom we find, like most things permissible, dull and uninteresting. The consul to Bangkok, a slim brown gentleman with a soft languid voice and tiny feet, is carrying home a family of Siamese cats, white with tawny legs and fierce blue eyes uncanny beasts with tigerish ways they live in the forecastle in company with an impulsive chinese puppy of slobberingly affectionate disposition and their prowling long-legged behavior gets upon his nerves most terribly he is too manly a little person to hurt them and his only refuge is an elaborate pretense of not seeing even when they rub against his nose, he gazes abstractedly off into space and firmly refuses to be aware of their existence. The doctor has two families of felines, one a respectable tortoise-shell British matron, absorbed with the cares of a profuse maternity, and the other a splendid Persian lady, madly jealous of the division in her owner's affections. He purchased her from a native on the wharves at Bombay, smelling of violet powder and with a gold thread around her neck, a theft from some zanana, and wild with several days' starvation and bad treatment. She has not, however, forgotten the ways of her odalisque mistress, and is greedy, luxurious, indolent, and bad-tempered. If the doctor dares, after touching the kittens, to caress her without having previously washed his hands, her keen nose detects his perfidy. She flies into a fury, claws, spits, rages, and finally rushes up into the rigging to sulk until he grovels with apologies and holds out seductive visions of dinner. It is eight o'clock in the morning. The ship is anchored off the coast of Ceylon. We arrived late last night, sailing into the harbor by the light of great tropical stars and the planet gleams of a pharos shining from the tall clock tower of Colombo. Already many ships lie in the narrow roadstead, and it requires the fine art of navigation to slip our boat's huge bulk into her berth between two of these and make her fast to her own particular buoy. The pilot came aboard just outside, and it is his firm hand that jams her nose up to within three hairs' breadth of the vessel in front, 
holds her there with a grip of iron and with cautious screw revolutions swings her into line with her heels in the very face of the australian mail ship arrived a few hours earlier then the entire passenger list on deck for the last half hour aiding the pilot by holding its breath sighs relievedly and joyously and goes below in a body to recuperate on brandy and soda i linger a moment in the darkness to smell the fragrance of the night moved by the vast flowings of a warm sweet wind seafarers of other days told of these perfumes of the spice island filling their sails far out at sea but the coal smoke of the modern ship deadens the nostril of the modern traveller and fills his heart with naughty doubts of the veracity of the ancient mariner nathless there are in the mountain forests of ceylon strange treeless lake-like expanses of aromatic lemon-grass from which the winds come heavy with intoxicating scents i fancy i can detect faint delicious savors in the air and that night sleeping with open portholes i dream of perfumes i am up early to have the first possible view of an island so like to paradise that adam was first banished to this place that he might not feel too sharply in the beginning his loss and the contrast upon adam's peak a soaring pinnacle seven thousand feet high of which we caught a glimpse yesterday while still far at sea stood the father of men and wept his lost eden for which even ceylon might not console him the bitter rain of this immeasurable grief trickling down the mountainside into the rocks the rivers the seas and the sands where it is found to-day as clear shining gems and pearls like tears it was upon this peak that having clothed himself in the skins of beasts he shred abroad to the winds the first green garments that hid his primal nakedness and these scattered far and wide by the breeze sprang up in spice plants so ambrosial a potency had even the leaves of the trees in paradise very like in the early morning looks this island of jewels of flowers and palms to the long-lost heavenly gardens it floats upon a smooth nacreous waste of waters under a sky of pale warm violet veiled in a dawn mist faint and mysterious as dreams beyond the massive breakwater of our straitened harbor curve the rims of white beaches frilled with foam where palms lean over to look at themselves in a sea of green mother-of-pearl inland the purple distances rise into lofty outlines deliciously softened and rounded by their enormous garment of verdure the prospect is very pleasing one is prepared to condone any possible vileness of the inhabitants it is very hot the thermometer even at this hour it is the last day of december registers eighty degrees but it is less oppressive than at singapore where one seemed to be breathing tepid water rather than air a long wharf juts out into the harbor with a custom house at its landward end we pause here to exchange some civilities concerning the weather and pass on with our luggage unmolested so soothing and plentiful a lack of curiosity have these officials in british ports the soil is red bright red the color of ground cinnabar 
not liver-colored as the earth seemed to the ancient northmen but deep-tinted as if soaked with dragon's blood of which antiquity believed cinnabar to be made a broad street fringed with grass and tulip trees goes inland and on either side are massive white buildings with arched and pillared arcades the vividness of color here is astounding brilliant intense like the colors of precious stones we doubt the evidence of our senses doubt the earth can be so red the sea and sky so blue it is a miracle wrought by the ineffable luminosity of the eastern day one's very flesh tingles with an ecstasy of pleasure in this giant effulgence of color as might a musician's who should hear the prodigious vibrations of some undreamably colossal harp the grand oriental hotel lies to the right of this road near the water big and glaringly white without cool and shadowy within ships from india china and australia have just arrived and the place is crowded the clack of many heels rings on the stone floor of the arcade which opens upon an inner flowery court where also look out the windows of the sleeping rooms above veiled by delicate transparent straw mattings waving softly in and out in the little hot breezes giving treacherous glimpses now and again of a pretty disheveled head and tumbled white draperies the arcade is full of british folk australians and anglo-indians passing to and fro to the dining-room to the stairs to the front entrance handsome as an anglo-saxon crowd of the well-to-do is apt to be tall florid men in crisp white linen and white indian helmets tall slim well-poised girls in white muslin with a delicious fruit-like pink in their cheeks brought there by the heat which curls their blonde hair in damp rings about their brows and white necks and tall imposing british matrons with something of the haughtiness of old rome in their bearing the mothers and wives of conquerors our rooms are at the end of a long corridor looking on the street they are carpetless and uncurtained their dim twilight being sifted from the burning glare without through green mattings hung at the windows before my door sits my own particular servant detailed to wait upon this bedroom similar servants are stationed along the corridor in front of their respective charges this attendant seems never to go away for at whatever hour i need him he is there even at night he does not desert his post unrolling a rug and sleeping where he sat all day a curious creature of a sex not easily to be determined mild-browed and woman-eyed with long rippling black hair knotted at the back and kept smooth with a tortoise-shell band comb the brown femininities of his face disappear at the chin in a short close-curled black beard he is full-chested as a budding girl but clothes himself to the waist in shirt coat and waistcoat the slender male hips being wrapped in a white skirt that falls to the ankles he is however an eminently agreeable person the gentle and confiding affection of his manner leaves speechless with joyful amazement the humbled victim of the harsh and haughty tyranny of the american servant girl 
he not only executes orders with noiseless despatch but receives them with a little reverence of the slim fingers to the brow and a look in his lustrous eyes of such sweet eagerness to serve that my heart is melted within me i find myself asking for hot water with the coo of a sucking dove i demand butter at table in the mild tones of a wind harp and converse with the guide in a manner i might naturally assume to a beloved younger sister this atmosphere of loving-kindness is that of paradise it expands the heart with unreflecting happiness and makes man even servant man my brother discreetly i refrain from too close examination lest this refreshing mirage resolve on nearer view to blank and desert indifference and for these two days i choose to live in a sunshine of reciprocal amenities it is the sacred and beautiful hour of tiffin the dining-room is as white cool and nobly plain as a greek temple long and very lofty reaching to the roof the second story opening upon it in an arched and balustrated clear story two punkas of gold-colored stuff wave above us on one side we look upon the arcaded court and through the heavy arched veranda upon the hot gorgeousness of color outside bowls of tropical flowers are set on each table and under the salt cellars and spoons at the corners are laid large leaves of curious lace-like pattern freaked with splashes of red and yellow more of the fawn-eyed men with long hair serve us and the assemblage gathered here for the moment is a remarkable one near the door sits a good-looking young man accompanying a party of blonde girls in smart frocks it is wordsworth's grandson and the owner of rydal mount at the table next him is a stern lean soldier with a melancholy face the lord chelmsford in whose african campaign the prince imperial was killed and the english suffered a hideous butchery surprised by the savages on the other side of the room is a young man with a heavy blond countenance dom leopoldo agostino and half a dozen things more who has just met here in his voyage round the world in a brazilian warship the news of his grandfather dom pedro's dethronement and exile the captain of the ship dares not continue the cruise in the face of peremptory cables from the new government and the young man is suddenly marooned here with all his luggage and attendants under the protection of the british lion who always has a friendly paw for les rois en exil near us is a man with a bulging forehead and a badly fitting frock coat of black broadcloth a noted mesmerist from america with a little texan wife fantastically gowned she poor soul having a picturesque instinct but no technique beyond him is a man of middle age with a fine saturnine countenance lean and bold as the head of caesar and an air of great distinction it is sir william robinson an irishman a well-known composer and a colonial governor beside him sits sir henry renfordsley a colonial chief justice at their table is lady broom a tall handsome woman with a noble outline of brow and head under the title of lady barker she is the author of many well-known and delightful books on life in the antipodes sir napier broom is also tall and handsome and is on his way home from an australian governorship in the arcade that faces on the street are native shops 
tiny cells full of basketwork, wrought brass, laces, jewels, carvings in ivory, ebony, and tortoise shell, India shawls and silks, Singalese silverwork, and such small trinkets and souvenirs, best calculated to lure the shy rupee from its lair in the traveler's pocket. Most of these shops are kept by moormen, large yellow unpleasant-looking persons in freckled calico petticoats heads shaven quite clean and covered with a little red basket too small for the purpose they inspire carking disgust and suspicion by their craven oiliness their wares for the most part not worth a tenth of the sums asked jewels are to be had at astonishing rates cat's eyes and moonstones being sold carelessly by the handful the arcade is full of itinerant merchants who carry their stock of precious stones, sometimes quite valuable, tied up in a dingy rag, disposing of them by methods of barter quite unique. Twenty times the proper value is demanded, and poignant outcries of bitter astonishment greet the unbelievably meager offer of the Saib, who should be as father and as mother to the merchant, but who proffers him only an insult. The rag is tied up in wounded amazement half a dozen times before a compromise suggests itself. Innocent joy dawns on the vendor's countenance. Chance shall settle it. Will the Saib toss to decide whether he shall give for this beautiful cat's eye two pounds or five? The original sum asked having been twenty, the Saib sees signs of relenting and consents to try the turn of the coin. The toss is fairly conducted, and whether he wins or loses, the importunate merchant appears content, as in any case he makes a profit. This warfare of barter, being as the breath of his nostrils, he is reduced to the verge of tears by the heartless conduct of those who pay him his price without protest or haggling. He himself is given to discomposing coup de commerce offering a bit of tortoise-shell carving for five pounds, and accepting the five shillings proffered in derision with breath-snatching alacrity, a snake-charmer is squatting in the dust before the hotel, performing feats of juggling, playfully depositing an egg in one ear, and in a moment picking it with a sweet smile of surprise out of the other, or seeming to do it, tossing into the air a coconut which obviously he has no present use for as it remains up there out of sight for a time while he goes on with his other tricks until we are suddenly aware of its lying beside him and cannot recall whether it was there from the first or not rubbing his egg between open outstretched palms until they meet and the egg is rubbed away to nothing at all and restoring it to existence by rotary movements of his palms in the opposite direction simple feats that are surprising because he is quite naked save for a turban and a loincloth and has no aids to his art but the brown cotton bag in which he carries his few properties and a small flat basket where a cobra is coiled but his hands are marvelously deft and supple the hands of an old race slim pliant well modeled and exquisitely dexterous he takes off the cover of the snake basket, the reptile within lying sullenly sluggish until a wrap over the head induces him to lift himself angrily, puff out his throat, and make ready to strike. 
but his master is playing a low monotonous tune on a tiny bamboo flute with his eyes fastened upon the snake's eyes and swaying his nude body slowly from side to side the serpent stirs restlessly and flickers his wicked thin red tongue but the sleepy tune drones on and on and the brown body moves to and fro to and fro presently the serpent begins to wave softly following the movements of the man's body and with his eyes fixed on the man's eyes and so in time sinks slowly in a languid heap of relaxed folds the music grows fainter and fainter dies away to a breath a whisper ceases the man hangs the helpless inert serpent drunk with the insistent low whine of the flute about his bare neck and breast and comes forward to beg a rupee for his pains we the lady from boston her son the salon tea planter and myself hire a guide and carriage and go for a drive through the town past the tall clock tower whose flashing light showed our path last night past the banks and the haunts of the money changers shroffs with fat yellow hook-nosed faces clad in crisp white buttoned with gold and with great circles of thin gold wire in their ears and black and gold headdresses on their smooth-shaven crowns past the beautiful sickle-shaped beach of gall face and then inland along the shadowy dank roads under the heavy green vault of the multitudinous palms coconut palms forty millions of these the guide says palmyra palms from which the heady palm wine is made kittle palms that yield sugar and sago talipote palms upon whose papyrus-like leaves were inscribed the sacred writings mahawanzo five hundred years before christ and preserved twenty-two centuries at wahari's and the areca palm that gives us the nuts the natives chew with their beetle leaves we pass banyan trees with roots like huge pythons coiling through the grass and down-dropped stems from the far-spreading branches making dim leafy cloisters breadfruit trees monster ferns pools full of lotus plants and orchids growing almost as freely as weeds the guide a gentlemanly person in a skirt has the usual mane of rippling hair bound in a sleek knot at the nape and at my request he untwists this and lets it fall far below his waist in silky black waves restoring it in a moment by a quick turn of the wrist to its former neat compactness he has never seen a hairpin and the gift of one of mine childishly delights and amuses him he thrusts it in and out of his hair and finally fastens it upon a string of queer charms and fetishes worn in his bosom he wraps for me a bit of areca nut with a paste of wet lime and a leaf of the beetle pepper and bids me chew it instantly my mouth is full of a liquid red as blood and tongue and lips are shriveled with a sharp aromatic astringent resembling cloves i hasten to spit it out but all day my lips are still hot and acrid from the brief experiment the entire population of ceylon are wedded to the beetle habit save the servants of the europeans who object to the unpleasant vampire red of the stained mouth and corroded teeth it harms no more than tobacco and the natives prefer it even to food 
from time to time along the road we come upon old women sitting upon the earth with little stores of nuts lime and beetle leaves spread before them for the refreshment of the wayfarer mem sahib says the guide touching his brow with his fingers and giving me one of those smiling black glances you are my father and my mother will you that we go to the cinnamon gardens and on the way he feeds upon ripe mangoes that have a reddish custard-like pulp sweetly musky in flavor from among the cinnamon bushes growing without order in the white sand and breathing faint odors in the steaming heat starts out a lean naked lad begging for alms he is not to be shaken off following in a leaping dance with flying hair and a white-toothed smile clapping his elbows against his ribs with a noise like castanets and rattling his bones together loudly and merrily as though a skeleton pranced after us through the dust so that we are fain to end the exhibition of his unique powers with a few coins in the museum that stands in the cinnamon gardens we find eden serpents the reverse side of this painted island paradise the dull venomous cobra in his spotted cowl clammy strangling folds of long pythons twenty-foot sharks with horrid semicircular hedges of teeth the wolves of these pearl-sown seas and endless stinging biting poisoning creatures wrought into wanton bizarreries by nature in some mood of cynical humorousness here are also the uncouth hideous masks of the old devil dancers great gold ornaments splendid robes and the ingeniously murderous weapons of this mild-mannered race who count in their history twenty-six kings done treacherously to death in other rooms are the stuffed skins of beautiful birds huge mammals and collections of rich-colored butterflies and moths all very hardly defended from the ravenous tropical disintegration as fierce and implacable as the productiveness is profuse it is a nature that devours her own children creating with a furious fecundity and consuming all her creations with insatiable relentless voracity a long road among palms palm-thatched huts with idle brown folk half-naked dreaming in the heat a door in a ruinous wall shaven-headed priests in yellow robes then a dim temple with tall gods whose heads reach stiffly up to the roof penetrating jasmine odors from altars heaped with stemless pink blossoms and the lord buddha reclining on his elbow drowsing in the hot semi-darkness among the stifling scents he is forty feet long painted a coarse vivid crimson and yellow but his flat wooden face is fixed in the same passive low-lidded calm that we saw upon it when he sat on his lotus among the japanese roses or listened in his tiny mountain shrine at penang to loud voices of the waters a nirvana peace undisturbed by passions or pity dreaming eternal dreams in the hot perfumed gloom about the walls are painted in archaic frescoes the pains and toils of his fifty incarnations of buddhahood through which he attained at last to this immortal peace vishnu and siva are the tall gods that stand by the doorway for to these he gives room and shares with them his altar flowers 
a swarm closes about us as we emerge crying for alms and not to be ignored or beaten off they have roused themselves from their lethargy in the simmering gloom of the palm-shaded huts and throng clamorous and insistent for the charity the lord buddha has enjoined impeding our footsteps and clinging to the carriage old women hold out the little soft hands of the dimpled naked babies they carry on their hip they themselves are hideous repulsive hags mere wrinkled disgusting rags of humanity with red stained toothless mouths and this at forty years the young women are plump and pretty with a discontented knot in their brows and hopeless peevish mouths femininity being a perplexing and bitter burden in the east small brown imps naked as adam save for a heavy silver necklace hung about their fat little stomachs cling to our knees and use their fine eyes with a coquette's conscious power smilingly seducing the coin out of our pockets it is the last night of the old year and the dining hall has been converted into a ballroom the men all in white with gay sashes about their middle are circling languidly with pretty english girls in their arms a high warm wind whirls through the veranda and flutters the draperies of the lookers-on the woman from texas in a fearful and wonderful costume that casts a slight but comprehensive glance at the modes of three centuries and muddles them all is tossing her powdered head and flirting shrilly with the soft-voiced governor with the caesar face a handsome ruddy old soldier with gray hair is moodily mounting guard over his three lank-elbowed partnerless daughters whose plump and pleasing mamma is frolicking jovially about clasped to the bosom of all ceylon's military ornaments wordsworth's grandson who looks as if designed to an order by du maurier is waltzing lazily graceful with one of the smartly gowned blonde girls faint rhythmic breathings of the music come to my chamber window the night is hot and silent full of musky perfumes of vague ghostly stirrings of old unhappy far-off things that move one with poignant mysterious memories of the dense tropical darkness with its silent flitting figures full of the glimmering bewildered phantoms of passions and pains that perished centuries ago morning the new year is coming in a beautiful green dawn a chrysoberyl sky translucent golden green a misty green sea and an ocean of feathery green plumes tossing noiselessly as with a great silent joy in the morning wind i have sprung out of bed to receive a letter my first one from home a few lines scrawled on the other side of the world that i lean from the window to read in the faint early light how beautiful they make the new year seem whatever this coming year will contain of grief and rebuffs at least it has begun with one good moment and for that it is well to be grateful end of chapter six recording by holly jensen